But we are finishing the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this is a long uh, passage. We're going to read it as we go through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about you. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand what you are telling us here. Help us to consider whether our way is narrow or wide, hard or easy, whether we're really following you or just following our own way. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. For this, we need your grace. Give us that grace that we might learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name. Meet Edwin Thomas, the master of the stage. During the latter half of the 1800s, this small man with a huge voice had few rivals. The doing in Richard III at the age of 15, he quickly established himself as a premier Shakespearean actor. In New York, he performed Hamlet for 100 consecutive nights. In London, he won the approval of the top British critics. When it came to tragedy on the stage, Edwin Thomas was in a select group. When it came to tragedy in life, the same could be said as well. He had two brothers, John and Junius. Both were actors, neither were close to his stature or were as famous as he was. And in 1863, the three siblings united their talents to perform Julius Caesar. The fact that Edwin's brother John took the role of Brutus was an eerie foreshadowing of what awaited the brothers two years later. For this brother John, who played the assassin in Julius Caesar, is the same John who took on the role of an assassin in Ford's theater. On a crisp April night in 1865, he quietly stole into the box in a Washington theater and fired a bullet into the head of Abraham Lincoln. The last name of these brothers was Luke, Edwin Thomas Luke, and John Wilkes Edwin was never the same after that night. The shame from his brother's crime drove him into retirement. He might never have returned to the stage had it not been for a twist of fate at a New Jersey train station. He was there on the uh, uh, waiting for his coach uh, at the train station, and uh, there was a well-dressed young man, a couple people in front of him. And that man was pressed by the crowd and lost his footing and fell between the platform and the arriving train. Without hesitation, Edward locked a leg around a railing, reached down, grabbed the man, and pulled him up to safety. And after all the sighs of relief, this young man recognized the famous actor, Edwin Booth. However, Edwin didn't recognize the young man that he had rescued. That knowledge came weeks later in a letter that he had received, a letter he carried with him until the day he died, a letter from General Adam Rudeau, Chief of Staff to Ulysses S. Grant. To thank Edwin Booth for saving the life of the son of an American hero. The boy, the young man that Edwin Booth yanked to safety was Robert 
How ironic. One brother killed President Lincoln, and the other brother saved President Lincoln's son. Edwin and James Booth. Same father, same mother, same profession, same passion, and yet one chooses life and one chooses death. How can that happen? I don't know, but it did, and it does. And although their story is dramatic, it's not unique. Abel and Cain, both sons of Adam. Abel chooses God, Cain chooses murder. Abraham and Lot, both pilgrims <coughs> in Canaan. Abraham chooses God, Lot chooses Sodom. David and Saul, both kings in Israel. David chooses God, Saul chooses power. Peter and Judas, both deny their Lord. Peter seeks mercy. Judas seeks death. In every age of history, on every page of Scripture, the truth is revealed. God forces us to make choices. And no one delineates this more clearly than Jesus himself. According to him, here in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the chapter, we can choose a narrow gate or a wide gate, a hard way or an easy way. The crowd of the many or the collection of the few. We can build on the rock or on the sand. And ultimately, those choices will determine if we're going to be numbered among the sheep or the goats of Matthew 25, which ends with this verse, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus Christ, like any good preacher, is nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's making his teaching here very, very personal. He gets very, very tough with his audience, both then and now. He's telling us that my teaching isn't just to be praised, but it's to be practiced. It's not just to be commended, it's to be carried out. And he demands this because obviously he believes that the Word of God has to be let loose in our lives in order to transform us. Did you understand that? Did you come this morning just to hear a sermon? Did you come to read the Bible? Did you come to look at Christ's teachings expecting a little inspiration or perhaps get a little bit of guidance? And the reality is you have a tiger by the tail because Jesus Christ has never, ever anyone something just so you might know. Jesus gives you nothing just to be known. He only gives us truth that will come into our lives and change us and revolutionize us and transform us. And that's why he's talking the way he is here. He's bringing it home. He's setting us straight. Now most people who preach this text preach on it for four or more weeks. In Montgomery Boyce spent six weeks. I'm obviously not doing that because I think each of the contrasts in this text is essentially about the same thing. And that's following Jesus versus not following Jesus. So, with that in mind, I'm going to spend most of the time this morning on the first contrast, which is that the way is narrow or wide. The way is narrow or wide. Starting at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And at this point, Jesus is talking about the narrowness of the gospel. You may think I enjoy preaching uh, on this, but I like to be uh, liked. I want to be like just as much as you do. But it's very hard to urge people to be narrow. It's kind of a negative word in our culture. And yet Jesus has deliberately chosen a word that we dislike, a word that we despise, as a way to characterize what a disciple of his should actually be like. And the reality is the last thing in the world that we want to be called is narrow. You can call me a lot of things. Don't call me narrow. You want to be mean to somebody, you can say all sorts of things, but if you call them narrow-minded, person says, don't say that. Don't tell me that. That to a degree, it's healthy, of course, because God forbid we ever be like the Pharisees who reduce the gospel to a set of regulations. God forbid we make the gospel into a bunch of rules. And yet there must be some way in which Jesus Christ is saying that we have to be narrow, or he wouldn't have chosen that word. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to take the narrow gate. Now, Christianity is narrow in a particularly vital way. It's narrow in that it demands focus and authenticity and intensity and commitment and discipline. Anybody who's accomplished anything in this life knows that the narrow gate is the way to excellence. You want to be a good doctor? It means for an awful lot of years you're doing nothing but study medicine, and in your residency you do nothing but prepare to be a doctor. You're absolutely narrow. You're focused. You're intensely committed, even if you don't want to be. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell poses a provocative question. He says, why do some people succeed living remarkably productive and impactful lives, well, so many more never reach their potential. And he gives several answers, but one of them that I found fascinating, that it takes 10,000 hours of doing something to become an expert at it. 10,000 hours of focused, intense practice. You want to be a world-class musician? You better give it eight to ten hours a day of focused, intense practice for a long, long time. You know the old story, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. Practice, man, practice. That's a narrow gate. But it's the only way to the freedom of great performances. You want to make money? You have to look intensely at investment opportunities. You have to look and look and discern and discern and only go after the best, most authentic opportunities and get rid of all the phony and the bogus ones. You want to have a world-class corporation? Quality, quality, quality. You have to constantly go through that narrow gate of quality if you want that your corporation to be prosperous. And that's the way it's always been. And Jesus says in spiritual things, you have to do the same thing. Most of us are quite willing in other areas of life to understand that. 
You know, unless I go through the narrow gate of physical conditioning, I'm never going to have the excellence of physical health. Unless I go through the narrow gate of musical practice, I'm never going to have the excellence of musical performance. We understand that. But when it comes to religion, we back off. And Jesus is telling us you can't back off. The fact that you find the narrow gate leading to excellence in all these other areas of life is because I built the universe that way. In an area of most importance, our relationship to God, the condition of our souls, it's the same thing. And Jesus tells us here, well, there's two ways, and only two ways in spiritual matters. And he describes those two ways, and he tells us how to get on the right one. And that's what we're going to do. And he's as clear as you can get. There's nothing gray about this. It's black and white. Two roads, here's what they are. Here's how to get on the right road. Well, the first thing we see is there's two ways. What does that mean? Well, the first thing Jesus is teaching us is there's no neutrality. In spiritual matters, nobody's on the fence. No one's stagnant. No one's standing still. There's two roads. They go to two different destinations. If you're on the right road, you're going to life. If you're on the wrong road, every second you're on the wrong road, you're moving away from life. No one's on the fence. There's no neutrality. There's no stagnation. We're all moving one direction or the other. And he tells us there's only two uh, ways. So they describe what those two ways are like. So you have an idea of which way you're on, which road you're on. What are the two ways? One's wide and one's narrow. Listen. We understand which way you're on. According to Jesus, everybody in this room is on one or the other. Everybody. No neutrality, no gray areas, two roads. What does Jesus tell us about the wide road? Well, the first thing he says is it's wide, and most people are on it. It's a startling thing to say. But I think he intends for it to be startling. If I walked in here this morning, knowing that virtually all of you drove here, and I said, by the way, there's a policeman out in the parking lot, towing a car. Some of you would get a little nervous. But if I said, by the way, there's a policeman out in the parking lot, and he's towing most of the cars in the parking lot, a lot of you would jump up and head out, see what's going on. Wait a minute. What's happening? And Jesus says, most are on the wide road. He wants you to be startled. He wants you to jump up and say, wait a minute, what's going on? I mean, here's the gospel. The gospel is you must be born again. You have to come to God. You have to make it about faith in your life. You have to cleave unto Jesus. You have to receive his life into your life. You have to take a whole new direction. You have to. And yet, most people, when they hear that, disregard it. And they take comfort and disregard it. Pastor A, that was pretty narrow. Yeah, I think you're off base. You guys are crackpot. It's not the people saying that. It's the men who say that. 
You take comfort if you're in the majority. If you think, I, us, are narrow. And Jesus says, I think you know you're wrong. Now you know you're wrong. The majority has always been against me. And if you're in the majority in your religious views, then you're against me. Don't say my name. Don't say you're a follower of Jesus. If you're in the majority in any society of religious views, that's what he's saying. And he says most people are on the wide road. So look out, that's the first thing. The second thing we find out about the wide road, besides having the majority on it, is that it's an easy road. The wide road is the easy road. Why does he call it the easy road? It's the road you were born on. The wide road is the road uh, that you were born on, that you live on, unless you're struggling with an act of the will to change, to be changed, to change your direction. You're not changing, you're in the wide road. If you've never really done anything of major religious nature in your life, if you've never made any major religious decisions, you're on the wide road. You're born on it. It's the easy road. It's the downhill road. I should tell you something about the word narrow. It's very clear that Jesus is saying the narrow road is the hard road. It hurts. That word narrow literally means to be strangled to be smothered, to be pinched, the, the image of being stuck in a pipe. All you claustrophobes are immediately starting to shake. Here's what Jesus says about the narrow way. First he says, it's narrow. It is so narrow. In fact, it's so narrow, there's only room to get on this road one at a time. You can't come in a crowd. You can't come with your family. You have to deal with them personally. The narrow road means that knowing Jesus is utterly personal. And Jesus, if you think about it, is always getting personal. Nicodemus uh, came to him, sits down with him, wants to have a nice theological discussion. What does Jesus say? Boom! You must be born again. The woman at the well comes to him, sits down, she tries to have a nice theological discussion. I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, can we worship here? Or can we worship there? Or maybe we can all worship everywhere. What does Jesus say? He's not having any of that. He says, oh my dear woman, listen to me. I want to have this nice polite conversation about theology. Let's talk about the five husbands you've had, the man you're living with right now. Don't you see, you want to talk about theology, you can't even manage your own life. You have to get personal. Jesus always gets personal and specific. So how are you relating to God? Can you get yourself right with God by yourself? It's so much easier to talk about general beliefs and general church affiliations and general civic behavior and general good moral behavior and just all so general. And yet Jesus comes and says, how are you dealing with me? Do you know me personally? 
Have you come to grips with what's standing between you and me? Because every person who's ever come to Jesus Christ has to come to grips with the fact that there's something between you and him. You know what that is. If you don't know and you haven't dealt with it, maybe you haven't come to him. You have to deal personally and specific, not generally. It's not good enough to be religious or moral in general. It's not good enough to come to the inspired part. Jesus wants to know, do you know him personally? The way is narrow. And he says there's only room for one person at a time. And, and there's no room for anything but you. You don't get to bring all your stuff with you. You're really depressed. I have a lot of stuff. I'm just assuming there's a big library, and that's why I don't have to bring my library to a better library. But you got to get rid of everything. you got to shed all the baggage. Sometimes the baggage has names, like wife, or husband, or child, or parent, or brother, or sister. And I don't want to get there ahead of my family, or my friends, or my parents, or my spouse, or my lover, or whatever. Can't get there yet, because i got other people that are not ready to come with me. There's no room on the road for anybody but you. You have to come all by yourself. While you're trying to figure out what road you're on, Jesus hits you with a warning. The warning about false prophets who uh, look good, but will do you harm. And he said, look at them closely, because you can tell if they're true prophets or false prophets, because their fruit is good or bad. Their fruit is good or bad. To you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is telling you that you'll have a lot of teachers. You'll have people who come and say, I'm a spiritual teacher, you should follow me. But he says you have to discern the true from the false because not all of them can be trusted. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to skip over most of this, partly because it's not that difficult for the average person to see, of course, that there's true and false religious teachers. But note the illustration here. It's not just true or false, and it's not just about good fruit and bad fruit. He says there's a lot of these teachers who say they're sheep. They're sweet and they're kind and we only care about what's best for you. But underneath they're wolves who want to use and manipulate their followers. And I think most of us know at some deep level that that's true. So I don't want to belabor the point mostly because I don't have time. And move on to the next point in which Jesus tells us, each one of us, each man, each woman, that you are wise or foolish. The man is wise or foolish. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, among the most saddest words in the Bible, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's radical. It's disturbing. Jesus says there's a lot of people who think they're Christian. They call Jesus Lord, but not all of them are Christian. Some of them are self-deceived. Some of them are counterfeit. And notice that he says, on that day, verse 23. Whenever Jesus says, on that day, he's talking about the last day, judgment day. And then to explain it, he tells this parable. I would not tell Jesus to do it this way if he was in my classes. But he does it. It seems to work. He says, everyone then, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What is he talking about? It's possible for people who call Jesus Lord sitting alongside of each other in the same church who on the last day are going to find out that some of them he never knew. Never knew. Little beads of sweat should start popping out on our foreheads about now. See, one of the signs of authentic Christianity is that the person grasps the grace of God. Look at the two houses. They're both built. Seems they pretty much look the same. You know what the houses are made of in this parable? We don't. And yet the parable comes right after these people who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? the house is made out. What things? Orthodox doctrine, service, teaching, ministry. We did mighty works in your name. In other words, both of these men are taking all of their moral efforts, all of their religious activity, but the difference here is not in the house, not in what they did. The difference here is the foundation. One built his house on the rock. The Bible tells us several times that Jesus is the rock. The other is on the sand, which I really think means the house is its own foundation. And if you look at your orthodoxy, your emotional involvement, your service for God, and your life isn't going very well, you're kind of like the psalmist. And Psalm 73 says, in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Paraphrasing, I worked my fingers to the bone for this God, and what does it get me? Things aren't working out for me, and I've tried so hard. I've been good. God should answer my prayers. I've done good things. God should accept me. I've, I'm a good guy. I should get his favor. And Jesus says, you're like the foolish man who built his house on the sand because your foundation is your obedience, your moral efforts, your religious activity. 
and the rain fell and the winds, the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and great was the fall of it. And I think the fall of it was great because you didn't expect it to fall. So what does it mean to build your house on the rock? It's back to the grace. It simply means, I think, to build your house on the foundation that is Jesus, that you're only a Christian by the grace of God. Paul says in Philippians 3, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is water bottle number three. I love allergy season. See what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3? My legal righteousness, my moral righteousness is faultless. My record is faultless. But I count it all as loss that I can gain Christ, be found in him, not having an acceptability of my own because I'm really good at keeping the law, but an acceptability which comes from Christ. And so I've counted my efforts is lost until I see them as inadequate until I realize that I'm saved strictly and completely and only by the grace of God. Then and only then have I built my house on the rock. So what do you do with all this? Well, you can't do much with it until you face one more issue. And that issue is whether Jesus' words have authority or not. Whether his words have authority or not. Look at verse 28. That should be verse 28 and 29. The last thing I want to draw your attention to in this text, and more to talk about. I think this passage, and in fact the whole Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters, asserts in no uncertain terms that the Lord Jesus is the divine Son of God, is equal to God in power and glory. He is the only way of salvation. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus finished this whole sermon, the crowds are astonished. Recorded in verse 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. But there's something very sad here. I don't know how many times I've read this and didn't really notice it. I noticed it this time. What does Matthew not tell us? He doesn't tell us that they believed on the Lord Jesus. He says they were astonished by his teaching. They're flabbergasted by what they heard. I've always wanted to use that word. Um, they never heard a sermon the likes of what they had just heard from Jesus. But it doesn't say that they embraced him by faith. And it is possible to hear faithful preaching of the gospel and not embrace Jesus. And Christ makes it clear in this passage that at the last day, one's eternal destiny will depend on whether he knows you and whether you know him or whether he doesn't know you and you don't know him. 
And he says, there's going to be those who say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. Which forces us to ask, what does this mean in terms of salvation? What does this mean in terms of our salvation? All through the Sermon on the Mount, we've said there's basically two foundations on which you can base your life. You can believe that you're competent and wise enough to run your own life and make your decisions. Or you can believe that God is competent to run your life and make the decisions. The only two foundations on which to build your life. They're both built on faith. Do you trust God or do you trust yourself? So what does that mean in terms of our own life? What does it mean in terms of salvation? Well, we've already learned the wide road is the easy road. It's the first foundation. We're all born into believing that we're competent to run our own lives, and unless by an act of the will you've worked to deny and to change that natural inclination to keep control of your own life, you will never, with all your might, break your own grip on your own life. It takes a tremendous act of the will. It takes repentance. It takes going to God. It takes effort. If you haven't done that, then you're on the easy path. And you're on the wide road. And how do you know you're on the wide road? Well, here's how. Wide road thinking goes something like this. And we've all heard people who say, I really think your understanding of Christianity is tremendously narrow. I have room for all faith. Jesus says, that's very broad-minded thinking. That man says, that's right. I'm a broad-minded person. Broad-minded thinking. Wide-road thinking. And Jesus says it leads to destruction. Buddhism has its eightfold path. The Quran has five pillars. Hinduism has karma. And what Jesus is saying by saying there's two roads and only two roads is that every other religion is essentially the same. He's saying the society is right about all the religions. So they say all roads lead to God. They all Many roads go to one place. And he says they're right about all the religions but mine. They all have essentially the same focus. The Buddhists say here's how you reach for God. The Muslims say no, no, no. Here's how you reach for God. Then the Hindus say, oh, no, 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 no. Here is how you reach for God. And then Jesus comes along and says, stop reaching. God is reaching down to you. Stop your reaching. Look at what he did. Look what I did. Recognize that I had to die for you. All the other religions really believe your situation isn't all that desperate. You're not so bad that you can't reach God if you don't pull yourself together and bring all your powers of concentration to bear and get your act together and follow this path. And Jesus says Christianity is totally different. Your situation is way too desperate for that. You need to have somebody come in and enter your life and pay the price for you to do the work for you. That's how God reaches down to you. Up to now, you've been a wide road thinker. You've been trying to be your own savior, trying to keep control of your own life. Get your clammy hands off your life. See the wide road thinking and turn to me. That's what he's saying. That's wide road thinking, the easy path that takes no effort to get on it. And if you've ever made a major effort to break the grip of your own hands on your own life, If you haven't done that, you're on the wide road. 
And most people are there, and that's not what I say. That's what Jesus said. In Dante's Inferno, there's one road that goes to life, and there's a sign over it that says, Abandon all pride, all ye who enter here. And then there's the road that leads to destruction, the road to perdition. And over that door, that sign says, Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. And that's it. You abandon your pride if you want to have hope. You abandon your hope if you want to have pride. But you don't get to keep them both. Jesus is saying the way of obedience always starts off narrow and hard and leads to life. The way of disobedience always starts off wide and easy and leads to destruction. He says there's two roads. There's only two roads and it's two different de destinations diametrically opposed to what the world says. The world says many roads, one destination, many in one. Jesus says no, two and two. He's as blunt as he can be. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Couldn't be clearer. Wide and easy, narrow or hard, and you can't fake it. There's a great series of books called Freakonomics. My son David pointed them out to me. They, they look at common problems and issues from the standpoint of economics, try to demonstrate that economics has way more influence over everyday decisions than most of us realize. And the authors have a blog also called Freakonomics, and they continue to deal with various issues, and they get some amazing responses. <clears throat> and recently, they had one that was called Faking It. And they gave a whole list of examples. My favorite example was the Jewish lady who claimed to keep a kosher home but had a secret love for bacon. And in response to that article, uh, they said their inbox just filled up. They had amazing material. So they did a follow-up article based on one particular email from a reader we'll call GD. The email reads as follows, quote, I loved your books. I found my thoughts drifting to some of the subjects over the past few days, especially altruism, unselfish concern for the welfare of others. I looked it up. I was curious if any of the experiments took into account the subject's religious beliefs. I don't know how one would logistically test that, but it'd be interesting to see how those claiming to follow a religious doctrine teaching altruism would do in the test. And that thought led to another about myself. This is still in the letter. How would I do in the tests? We are agnostics living deep in the heart of Texas. And our family fakes Christianity for social reasons. It's not so much for the sake of my husband or myself, obviously the woman's writing this, but for our young children. We found by experience, if we were truthful about not being regular church attenders, the play date suddenly ended. This started the faking of the religious bunk. It seems silly, but it's very serious business down here, deep in the heart of Texas. We don't go to church or teach our children one belief is right over another, we expose them to every kind of belief and trust 
one day they'll settle into their own spirituality. However, for the sake of our friends and neighbors, we pretend we are Christians. We try not to lie. But rather, we don't disclose unnecessary information. As the children are getting older, this isn't so easy for them, and an outing is probably imminent. We're not the only ones. We found quite a few other fakers out there. I would love it if you explored this subject in a future book. I should mention the friend who recommended Freakonomics to me is the head of the Bible study at her church. Interesting. End quote. These people are intentionally pretending. They're telling people they're on the narrow way, but they're really on the wide way, the easy way, and they know it. Which raises a really big question. You pretending? There are a lot of people who claim to be on the narrow road, but who are living as if they're on the wide road. Their Christian life is easy because it's not very Christian. And they risk facing Jesus someday and hearing him say, I never knew you, depart from me. If you find this difficult, just think of Jesus. In the end, the narrowness of the gospel is the narrowness of Jesus. Look at what he did. When he's in heaven, he looks down and sees if he comes to earth, he's going to have to give up all his glory, come and be born into poverty, be born into a dirty manger, become a little baby. At the end of his life, he knew when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane that soldiers are on the way, and there's going to be torture, and there's going to be nails splintering his bones, and there's going to be thorns in his scalp, and there's going to be a spear in his side, and there's going to be the slow death of suffocation, And all of that is a mosquito bite compared to the pain and torment of the rejection of the Father. And which did he choose? Did he choose the easy way? No, he says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Look into Jesus' tomb. When you look into that tomb, it looks awfully small and cramped. It looks pretty narrow, doesn't it? Some of you right now, some of you have chosen the narrow way and maybe feeling stifled. Look into that tomb. I get cosmic claustrophobia when I look into that tomb. You just want to shout out, don't go in there, Jesus. It's a dead end for sure. It's very narrow. It's a dead end. And he went in there because at the back of the tomb is a narrow gate into the life of God. There is no other way for Jesus into that life than through the tomb. And there's no other way for you and me unless you take the narrow way, the focused way, the authentic way, the committed way. And please don't take too long. If what you heard this morning moves you, listen to it, act on it. Don't say maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year. You might be hardened by then. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God's going to invade, all right, but what is the good of saying you're on his side when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream? And something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something beautiful to some of us and terrible to others, that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And it will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. That's the time when you discover what side you really chose, whether you realized it before or not. Now, 
today, this moment, is the chance to get on the narrow way. It's a narrow gate. And God is holding back to get you to the narrow gate, but it won't last forever. And you can't pretend. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us the King. Thank you that you let us see your Son. Thank you for this wonderful, tremendously practical truth that obedience begins as straight and narrow and opens into life. And disobedience begins as wide and easy and empties into destruction. Lord, I pray for everybody here, if they've already entered that narrow gate and they're on that hard path, that you would give them the incentive and the strength and the courage they need this morning to continue on that path and set their eyes on your kingdom. And Father, if there's anybody here at all who's in a position where they now realize they're on the wide path, enable them to move over. Enable them to realize today is the day to choose the narrow path. Help them to see, although it looks so narrow, it's the way to life. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself. Draw them to the narrow path. Draw them to the narrow gate. And help us all to know and believe that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever.